Hey everybody, welcome to the Did You Know podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Professor John Verveke, who is a just immensely interesting person, and you'll hear about his background when we introduce the actual interview portion of it. But I think you guys are going to really like this. This is kind of a confluence of Bitcoin with kind of the larger changes uh, that are happening in our world, in society, and culture and the adriftness that we feel and which is one of the reasons i think that bitcoin has taken such a hold now is because of the adrift nature of our society these days but we will get into kind of the nitty-gritty on what we're you know what i'm talking about uh, in, in respect to to that question uh but first really quick before we go to the episode if you guys could do me a real big favor go to itunes leave a five-star written review. Just go to digitalcrypto.com, click on the iTunes icon, and just go there and leave a review and a five-star. That helps so much, especially since for whatever reason, maybe it's been my um, aggressive kind of argumentative nature on Twitter, but there's been a spate of people going and leaving one-star reviews, which has uh, drugged down my rating. So I'd really appreciate it if you guys would go there and leave the five stars, which will help to bring it back up to where it belongs. I really appreciate you guys listening. Also, supportmypodcast.com is now up. You can go there, uh, click on the discount section. You can get discounts on a bunch of other different things. Pretty soon I'll be converting it over to a free, but a membership sort of thing. It'll still be free. But go to supportmypodcast.com. Use uh, the discount codes that are listed there for an ever-growing amount of discounts in the Bitcoin and the larger space as well. And last thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you for listening. All you who uh, consistently download and subscribe, um, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor, YouTube, and a lot of other different places. So everybody who's listening right now, I really appreciate you know you taking time out of your day. So have a great day, and thanks again. Enjoy the show. I'm extremely excited to welcome John Verveke. He's a professor at the University of Toronto in the psychology department and the cognitive science program. He participated with Jordan Peterson in an extremely popular discussion on the meaning of life and currently has been releasing his lecture series entitled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which will be the main topic that we are speaking about today. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dustin. And, you know, like I just mentioned, um, uh, your series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis and you know you've, uh, on, I've mentioned it on multiple shows actually now and and how much I've enjoyed it and oh, while you. it's you know it's impossible to kind of condense you know what's now what about 30 plus hours of, of lectures yeah. into yeah. into one explanation but uh, can you give uh, you know a good overview of what the meaning crisis is kind of it's where you see its genesis its evolution and where we're at in the present day Sure. Uh, yeah, we're going to be releasing episode 31 today, so it's going to be 30 uh, tomorrow, I mean. So, uh, yeah, 31 hours to compress into a, a few minutes. Let me try my best. Uh, so the, uh, the main idea is uh, this uh, sort of central feature characteristic of our cognition, uh, that it's uh, a dynamically self-organizing process. And those pro that dynamical self-organizing process that makes us so adaptive simultaneously makes us perennially susceptible uh, to various forms of self-deceptive, self-destructive thought and behavior. Um, and so these are perennial problems that human beings face across cultures, across uh, contexts, across uh, uh, historical time periods. And that's why you'll see it in, in world literature all over the place, people falling into despair or thinking that their existence might be meaningless and so forth. Now, what has typically been the case is that uh, cultures, including our own, previously had sets of practices, what I call psychotechnologies, uh, that were designed to explicitly uh, ameliorate and remediate uh, against these perennial problems, give people alleviation to the way in which their agency was being undermined and, and they were experiencing distress and despair. And you, you can sort of broadly you know, label that, those sets of psychotechnologies the cultivation of wisdom and self-transcendence. But 
those psychotechnologies, of course, have to be set within a, a community, a tradition, uh, and then that tradition, the community, has to be legitimated, valorized by a sustaining um, uh, worldview. And then what what happened in the West is that that worldview that was born out of the Axial Revolution in ancient Greece and uh, ancient Israel that had given us such a source of support and valoration of the practices by which people cultivated wisdom and thereby alleviated these perennial problems started to come under serious threat. And it was progressively undermined and that uh, that undermining was accelerated in the, in the, the Protestant uh, Reformation um, and the scientific revolution. And also one of the consequences of the Protestant Reformation is we lost contact with our own wisdom institutions. Uh, the monasteries and such were uh, shut down. And th that this has uh, been an ongoing progression, this erosion um, of that worldview and, and the falling into obsolescence of sapiential institutions, uh, psychotechnological practices uh, for cultivating wisdom. It's been fragmented. Uh, it's been lost. We, we've lost institutions. We've lost traditions. Um, we've lost the worldview. And so what happens, of course, is that people can't stop responding to the perennial problems because they're perennially problematic and they're deeply distressing. But, you know, where would you turn if you wanted to cultivate wisdom as opposed to obtaining information or knowledge. And so what people do is they sort of try in a fragmented and autodidactic way to cobble together responses to these problems, especially when they become exigent uh, within their own lives or the lives of people that they care about. And that fragmentary autodidactic response is often haphazard. It can exacerbate cognitive bias, self-deception, and all of that deleterious possibility can be actualized and accentuated by to a very significant degree by the advent of social media and the way in which it tends to provide a lot of deceptive uh, interaction. It, it often looks like you're interacting with other people intersubjectively, which is one of the ways we often check for self-deception. But of course, with, with, with social media, that check is actually ersatz because you're not really looking for people because you, you're, there's a tremendous selection bias, a tremendous confirmation bias. You're not really looking for people that will challenge you. And so you've got polarization, you've got echo chambering, and all of this is just magnifies and accelerates uh, uh, the inability to respond to the perennial problems in people's lives. And so that results in an ever-increasing meaning crisis. You get increasing rates of suicide, you're getting increasing rates of mental health issues, you're getting increasing uh, problems of loneliness, increasing uh, you know addiction, uh, increasing rates in which people are rejecting the real world and retreating into the virtual world um, in, in various ways. You you get a, a lot of attempts to take things to to take individual systems of meaning and interaction and try to inflate them to take on the role of an entire worldview, like a political party or a political ideology. Uh, and so you see all of these things um, uh, increasingly becoming pervasive in the culture and people are feeling increasingly like the culture is pervaded by bullshit. I'm using that term in a technical sense. Uh, there's massive disenfranchisement from political participation in many ways, even though everything in another sense is becoming politicized. Uh, people are uh, disenfranchising from established religions. Uh, so, so all of this right? That's the sort of the negative things. You can also see the advent of uh, sort of positive responses in which people are trying to put together uh, a more systematic response to the meaning crisis. And so you see the revival, you see something like the mindfulness revolution, which I have criticisms of, but nevertheless, it's symptomatic of people trying to bring back practices that will alleviate self-deception. You see the rise of wisdom, ancient wisdom philosophies like Stoicism coming back into prominence in a very significant way. You see rise of new movements like the authentic discourse movement. You see the rise of many new communities that are sapiential in their orientation, like secular monasteries or various communities where people are putting together ecologies of practices to try and give people a venue uh, to respond to the meaning crisis. And so all of this is my way of trying to 
um, articulate right how I think we can give sort of a unified explanation for all of this, what we're seeing, both in terms of the history that I've uh, briefly indicated here, and also a cognitive scientific investigation into that very uh, that very um, uh, adaptive machinery, that machinery that makes us adaptive and self-deceptive at the same time. So by coordinating together a historical analysis and a scientific analysis, I hope to try and get a, both a good formulation of a problem and some articulation of how uh, what a response to the meaning crisis would look like. There, that's the best I could do, I guess. <laughs> no, that that was great. Uh, and and one one of the things that really struck me first about you know listening to your to your lecture series was that that very point of of people kind of turning, uh, in, in, you know, in search of mm-hmm. of wisdom and and mainly community because it was one of the things that I'd uh, you know kind of had been recognizing was that when you see communities like you know within the vegan community CrossFit. Yep. Um, and, and things like that, where it's a search for community and within you start to see the emergence of rituals yep. of, uh, virtue and vice, you know, like, you yep. have, obviously within veganism, uh, eating meat is the biggest vice you have, yeah. you have rituals as well. And then you see that, you know, um, kind of counters to that, where you see, you know, where, where the juxtaposition, you see the carnivory, um, uh, system as well, but it all seems, you know, like it's, it's these bad attempts at searching, not that individually you could have a moral issue with eating meat or whatever, and that's that's not the problem. I think is that the 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 ideas of turning these into almost a uh, ritualistic secular religion, yeah, yeah, very, very much. So you're trying to, I mean, again, I, I like you, I think there are serious moral and ethical issues. I, I, for example, don't eat mammals, so I understand why people want to make a difference, a moral difference by altering their diet. But I agree with your point, the, the attempt to sort of make it an overarching worldview and sort of carry the burden uh, that worldviews and religion and history used to carry for us. Yeah, I, I don't think that's ultimately going to be satisfying. And that's why you can see, um, you, you can, in, in, I, I don't want to overgeneralize here, you can see in some instances of this, a kind of an intensity that seems disproportionate uh, to their participation in, you know, a change of diet and a change of lifestyle. It seems to be trying to satisfy some deeper psychological need for people. Absolutely. And as far as historically, though, has there been, um, looking back through the historical record, it's, it's much more difficult, obviously, because, you know, the farther back you go, the, the, the less either accurate or just the amount of data that you have. Sure. But have you seen this as a pattern that that communities have gone through almost like a, a hero's journey uh, to kind of borrow that that analogy as well? It it kind of almost reminds me of the hero's journey, this concept of of, uh, you know, an abyss where there's a death and rebirth as you search for new meaning. You have that transformation and then you kind of return to this concept. And it, to me, it almost seems like there there could be a cyclical nature within history of these these sorts of uh, um, patterns. I don't know if I have any good evidence for there being anything like um, cycles. Um, I do think there has been a period in time. I mean, you can see it in individual communities. Uh, the book that I wrote with Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic, we talk about that, the, the zombie book. Uh, we talk about um, a, a, a community in Canada that was uh, affected by something like uh, an individual, uh, uh, sorry, I mean, individual to the community uh, meeting crisis. Uh, but you can definitely see it uh, in the history, at least. I, th- I think there's one period where I would clearly say it, ha- it happened in, in a way that was not part of the continuity of the history of our particular meaning crisis. And I would say that you could see something deeply analogous to um, this in the Hellenistic period. Uh, because what you, you... So one way of... One of the symptoms of, of the meaning crisis is, is kind of a sense of what Porteus and Smith called domicide a sense of not being at home. Now that can be just physical and that's, uh, that's, that's of course a horrible thing to happen to people. But what's more interesting is cases where people have physical dwellings, but they feel that they don't have a home. And you know what this can be like in your own experience. You can experience this, for example, uh, when you're traveling and you feel homesick, even though you might be staying in a nice hotel or you go to another culture. And although you have a physically satisfying dwelling, you're experiencing tremendous culture shock and homesickness. So I'm trying to convey that with this sense of domicile, not so much the physical loss of home, but this kind of sense of not being homed in the world. And what happens after the collapse, I don't mean the collapse, the fragmentation, and notice that term, 
the fragmentation of Alexander's empire, right? You've got this tremendous change. Like if you were to compare, think of this. So Alexander is taught by Aristotle. If you compare living, being alive in the time of Aristotle and being time in life, alive in the time right after Alexander is like a tremendous difference. Like in the time of Aristotle, right? You're still, you're, you, you belong to a polis, right? It's a small, it's a relatively small community. Uh, you know, everybody speaks your language. Everybody uh, has your religion, right? You've been there for ages. Your ancestors have been there for ages. Everybody's ancestor, like, you know what I mean? There's this deep rootedness, sharedness, interweaving. And then by the time of the death of Alexander, what you've got is massive displacement, right? And during the time of Aristotle, not only is there this tight uh, interweaving, you're often close to the seat of your own government. You may even know some of the people who are in power. But after Alexander, there's this, there's this law, you know, like people are displaced, the people near you haven't, right? They may, they may, they, they may be immigrants, right? You may have emigrated, right? There's, there is, there's multiple languages, multiple religions, right? There's all kinds of stuff going on. And you're thousands of miles away from the, the seat of power. And, and, you know, you could go to sleep in the Ptolemaic Empire and you wake up and you're part of the Seleucid Empire and you've done nothing and you don't know what's going on. Like, and so you see, and this is why many people describe the Hellenistic period as an age of anxiety. And you can see it, it I, I'm not claiming any kind of identity, but you can see how there's a lot of similarities between that period and our own period of globalization, um, uh, et cetera. And what you see, though, which is something different, but perhaps some similarities, is you see that there, I mean, there's the rise of new religions to try and deal with the Hellenistic meaning crisis. Um, and, and, those, and some of them are very important, like there's the rise of, um, you know, uh, something like what's going to be eventually become Gnosticism, and that has really important ramifications for European history. But you, you see, importantly, the rise of new kinds of philosophies uh, that are that arise specifically uh, to try and reconfigure, rethink, retheorize, and, and also uh, you know redesign what wisdom means. New sets of practices. You see this in Stoicism and Epicureanism, and, and eventually, like I say, in, 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 in things like Gnost related things like Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. And so, what you get is you get this huge um, project in the creation of schools and communities. And, and they're given tremendous cultural support. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is himself a great Stoic philosopher, and he's ruling the Roman Empire. Um, and so um, there has been at least one other period that I think you can, I, I, I think you can make a fair comparison to our own. There's a lot of important similarities. Um, there, you can see uh, similar patterns of distress, ideas of suffering and anxiety become pervasive, and, and the notion of what it is to be a philosopher um, become centrally tied to the ability to alleviate the anxiety of other people, bring about peace of mind. And so there's a, there's a distinct similarity there. I don't see, I have to be really careful here. I mean, there is stuff emerging, but I don't see that, that we have exactly the same kind of profound response yet to our meaning crisis that the people in the Hellenistic period had to theirs. And, uh, you mentioned earlier. I wanted to kind of go down the 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 route of of psychotechnologies. Sure. And you 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 gave uh you know kind of the larger general term of them, but just for the for the listener, um, just I was wondering if you could kind of go more into depth with that and kind of give some traditional and maybe more modern examples of sure. of, of psychotechnologies so that people can kind of wrap their head around uh, what we're talking about as we, as we kind of move a little bit farther down where where I'm steering us. Yeah, sure. I'd like to do that. Um, so I would say, I mean, I'm trying to give something, it's not exactly a formal definition, but something along those lines. I would say a, it, a psychotechnology, it has to be socially generated. And that's how it's different from like an individual skill. It has to be socially generated in standardized way, a socially generated in standardized way, I should say. Of formula of formatting, manipulating, right, enhancing information processing. It's got to be readily internalizable. It has to be sort of designed so that it fits well into human cognition, and it can be sort of internalized, become automatic, second nature. It can be applied in a domain general manner. What I mean by that is you can apply it in 
many different domains of your life. So that's how it's unlike the skill of tennis, where you can only apply it in a very limited domain, right? Uh, it must be capable of, in, in some important and reliable sense of, how do I want to put this? Of extending and empowering cognition. It's got to do that extensively, reliably. It has to be highly generalizable amongst your population. Many people should be capable of internalizing it. I would say some prototypical examples are literacy, especially alphabetic literacy. So think about literacy. Does it meet that definition? Is it socially constructed? Yes. Is it readily internalizable until, until it becomes second nature? Yes. Like the Stroop effect is evidence of how automatic and second nature uh, reading is. I, you can't look at a word and not read it anymore. That's not usually something that you're capable of doing, uh, right? And, and does it fit your cognition? Yeah, it really fits important aspects of your cognition. Does it empower and enhance it in a reliable way? Think of all of the things you couldn't do if you no longer possessed literacy. Does it apply in a domain general manner? Yeah, you can use literacy all across your life in so many different domains and so many kinds of problems. Does it standardize and enhance and improve your information processing? Yes. So that's a psychotechnology. Literacy, numeracy is a psychotechnology. I think mindfulness is a psychotechnology. I think graphing, Cartesian graphing are, are examples of uh, psychotechnologies. So that's basically what I mean uh, by a psychotechnology. It doesn't just mean any sort of skill or any sort of practice. It, it's a specific kind of practice um, that has a lot of the features that tools have for us. But instead of being a tool that fits your physical body, it's a tool that fit, fits your physical body. So think, again, a hammer. Is it it's socially constructed? Many it can be used by many people in many different circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what makes it such a good tool, right? Uh, and uh, these psychotechnologies, are, again, are not physical tools in the sense of fitting your body. Uh, they are tools that fit your cognitive processing and enhance it in systematic and reliable ways across many domains of endeavor and for reliable uh, large numbers of your population. And I you know I've had this kind of ever since I started listening to your to your series and there's you know uh, uh, overlapping it with with kind of where my focus has been of late but um, I've had these kind of this emerging set of ideas uh, relating to kind of Bitcoin in mm -hmm. in that same sense and I'd love to have your opinion on it whether it, you know it actually has promise as being such or if it's just kind of uh, naive Twitter musings. Um, but in a, I remember listening in one of your past interviews, you talked about money itself yes. as a psychotechnology. You know, it, it abstracts value, yep. um, you know, in society and, and with individuals. And yep. um, it yes. sort of just goes a little bit long, but, but but bear with me, I guess. But Sure, sure. Go know, ahead. Sorry. Kind of your uh, generalized view of the mini, uh, meaning crisis, You're, you talk about the, the rejection of traditional institutions that offer these technologies that provide, you know, meaning, stability, kind of community and everything like that. And it's led to all these harmful activities. Um, but Bitcoin itself is a rejection of these traditional institutions. But mm -hmm. what I see that the difference is, is that uh, it's it's seeking to replace them almost kind of like in the military. Uh, you kind of have a, um, you're, you're, you don't move one unit out and then later move another unit in. A lot of times you'll have one uh, and move in another one and you just kind of do a replace, you know, one for one. Right. And to me, that's almost similar to what Bitcoin is, is that it doesn't create um, a void in this system. And it also offers new concepts, ways of thinking that I think are extremely important. I think it's the, the greatest uh, and most important of the innovations of Bitcoin beyond just money is that it broke mental barriers that held beliefs of what people thought was impossible, the creation of money without a centralized institution. Mm. And, and now it is possible. And there's a term, and I'm really hoping that you can help me remember. I, it's a, I can't remember. It's a psychological term that when people think something's impossible, they see one person do it, and then it starts to become normalized. Once everybody realizes that something's possible, you know, it becomes normalized within society. And my example that I remember was the, the 1080 and snowboarding. Everybody thought it was impossible. A guy did it. And 
And um, after that, you started seeing more and more people doing it because they realized that something that that was no longer impossible. I can't remember that that term. Um, if you do, I'd appreciate it. But but that's kind of um, the mental barrier that was mm-hmm. removed as a need for centralization, especially. And this is a ama- I mean, money and and finance and this abstraction of value in society is a a huge area mm-hmm. and 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 how we operate and. It's been centralized uh, in one way or another since the beginning of time. Um, and that leads us, that understanding of Bitcoin leads people to question the need probably for centralization in other aspects of life, for good or bad. I mean, there are some areas where centralization does uh, provide more efficiencies and you just have to mm-hmm. um, uh, weigh those trade-offs. And there's other smaller things. Uh, Bitcoin as a deflationary mindset you know, uh, instead of incentivizing you to spend now because your money's worth less later, it kind of incentivizes almost a saving mindset, which is much, mm-hmm. you know, kind of go hearkening back to more tradition, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, flipping your mental state to sacrifice the present for the future. Right. That's very interesting. I, uh, so, I mean, um, I would, uh, what I tried to say is I, I think that, m- I, m- yeah, that money insofar as it's an abstract symbol system, um, and gives you abstract thought and then links itself to the established psychotechnology of numeracy can be thought of at least as a vehicle for a psychotechnology. Yes. Um, and then that what makes it a psychotechnology, right, is when it, it when it permeates cognition and becomes pervasive uh, within a, a, a cultural group. And uh, I see what you're saying. I, I think that's very interesting, very insightful. So w- let me let me make sure I've got your argument. The argument is that. Uh, Bitcoin, I mean, it's like like money. It's, you know, it's invented for very practical, you know, economic and financial reasons, but it engenders a new way of thinking. And so as people practice making use of the currency, they also start to practice this new way of thinking, a new way of thinking about value, new new ways of thinking about, you know, money per se as an abstract symbol system disconnected from a centralized state structure. Um, It gets them organized differently with respect to time. Right, it, it, right. They, 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 they can become more future oriented. That's very interesting. Uh, that, that, is this, are these your ideas? Um, N- uh, no, I mean, I, I couldn't take uh, credit for these. These are uh, just kind of things that you know over over the years within kind of the Bitcoin community. This thing has been just kind of things that are kind of discussed internally, mostly you know on Twitter. Uh, you know, as people write different medium posts and and books and articles and just discussions. It's it's kind of, um, and there, there's, you know, to be honest, there's always fractures within communities right. of different concepts of what it means. And that's also kind of one of the important things of Bitcoin as well is that uh, it doesn't, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't require you to, you know, agree with it or, or what it has a, is a set of rules that you abide by and, and that's it. Anybody from any political whatever um, right. c- can use it. There's no... There's no, it's a, it's political in nature. Um, it was a discussion I just had with another individual, but uh, it's apolitical in the sense that it doesn't pick favorites or anything like that. Anybody that wants to participate, abide by the rules, is welcome to. But these are just kind of things that, um, from various sources and various conversations with people, it started to be kind of coalescing in my brain. But the various ideas have been been out there and discussed. But it, this is just kind of what I've been. Uh, kind of condensing on on my thoughts on Bitcoin for the last probably six months or so. Right. That, well, I find that very interesting. I mean, the, the I guess the next question as a researcher would be to ask, is there any evidence that it is becoming sort of pervasive in, in people's way of thinking uh, outside of, uh, you know, of a very limited domain? So is it generalizing in some this way of thinking, the way, you know, numeracy and abstract thought generalize out of, you know, a financial or commercial system when when coinage is invented, and, and uh, that I I, I I I have I'm absolutely ignorant about that. Do you know if there's anybody who's doing any kind of research on this? Like, like, is it leading to new ways in which people are talking across their life in general? Is new ways of thinking? Are people starting to propose new ways of thinking about how to organize their lives or their communities? I'm I'm, I'm fishing here yeah. because I'm trying I'm yeah. trying to come up with hypotheses to test right. Yeah, uh, as far as from the kind of sociological and psychological side, I don't think that there's any been any kind of rigorous academic kind uh-huh. of study with it. Bitcoin, for the most part, um, has been very much an economic uh, 
question and an economic project. But, you know, it's me, especially me personally, have been looking at it more at, at the philosophical and others do, too. But I mean, looking at it from this concept of changing mm-hmm. um, um, people's mindset as well. I did a episode a few um, probably like eight or so ago on the, you know, the cults of Bitcoin and the, the cults being, you know, kind of that. Um, actual academic term of just you know groups of of people and there there are different cults mm. within Bitcoin with different and this kind of goes back to what we talked about the ritualistic practices uh-huh. um, within um, you know a CrossFit or veganism that that's kind of emerged within Bitcoin as well uh, the the largest group of of Bitcoiners um, they they value kind of the the concept of it being a digital gold a store of value and that's where I think that uh, this this concept of of um, saving for the future, of, of time preference, of having uh, a time preference for the future versus for the for the short term has started to emerge. And the rituals that are involved with that are the idea of running your own full node um, that basically contains the whole history of Bitcoin. Most people, if you have a wallet on your phone, uh, that's connecting to somebody else's node. But the con- one of the things within Bitcoin is this idea of don't trust, verify, right? So you verify all the transactions yourself so right. that you know that you have the the correct ledger, the the correct um, that that you have all the truth, and you're not trusting somebody else for that truth. Uh-huh, and so by running your own full node within within this subsection of Bitcoin is this idea of where you're verifying truth. You're not trusting any third parties for that truth, and and it's almost a sacramental thing in a way of right. running your own full node and and having you know holding your Bitcoin for the long term. Um, for that, there, there's other there's other cults that that value Bitcoin in in different ways as well. But it, it's been kind of interesting as uh, um, as I've been talking about this with with various people. That episode was with uh, uh, Vin Armani, who's a, a Bitcoiner as well. But it, you know, it's this um, it's really interesting to see these aspects start to. Um, and you talked about forming communities. There's also this concept of the the citadel of the future, where people who had the foresight of owning Bitcoin early on that that would accumulate larger wealth in the future would need to have some sort of uh, Bitcoin communities and things like that. I don't subscribe to that, but it is some of the things that you talk about, you right. know. And it's it's half joked about, but a lot of things that end up becoming tenets of people's belief systems are usually um, just kind of abstract thoughts at the at the beginning. Right. Oh, so that's interesting. So definitely kind of a mythos and mythology is forming. People are taking up. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, I mean, like with Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that creates and people use religious imagery. They call it the virgin birth of Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Where Bitcoin, Bitcoin came out of nowhere. Nobody knew about it. And it just kind of started. It bootstrapped itself. And before anybody knew it, it had a large network where now these are people with faces, with names, with histories, and they create something. And now all their baggage comes with it. Where with Satoshi, he's this character. We have no idea who he is. Uh, he's never revealed himself. He's never even moved the coins that he mined that are worth quite a, you know, bill, yeah. you know, tens of billions of dollars. And they, you know, it's referred to as the virgin birth of Bitcoin. And, and, and that kind of religious imagery has been very fascinating to me. Yeah, well, it is to me, too. Um, so, yeah, that sounds like there's a mythos. There's def- definitely sort of sacredness. There's ritualized practices. There's a, a sense of a new kind of community, a new way of being in the world. There's new epistemic practices about how you sort of check the truth and, you know, bear a responsibility to yourself. Yeah, this you, you're right. This is a very interesting phenomenon. I'm going to talk to Chris about this. Um, I think we might want to uh, do, do a little bit of work around it. Uh, have you written uh, very much about this anywhere or... I, I have not written that you know too much. I've I've mostly been doing uh, you know podcast interviews and things like that, and and especially over the last probably six to eight months, I've been focusing more on my last episode that I just did was with a, a gentleman. Um, it's not his real name, but his his moniker on the internet is Gigi, and um, he's a, a, a gentleman from across the pond and. He wrote a piece about Bitcoin as as a living organism, as kind of this concept of the super organism of, oh, wow. you know, swarm yeah. intelligence where you have all these individuals yep, 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 and yep. you have, you know, one foot in the digital, but also one foot in the meat space as well. Yeah, and yeah. this it, is it so gnostic. Very much. 
Yeah, yeah. this is very yeah. Gnostic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely want to know about more about this. Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe. Well, I'll take a look at some more, more of your uh, episodes. But if you could send me at some point a, a link to that paper, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll send you things. Uh, I'll send you a bunch of links of things that I think yeah. uh, would 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 kind of uh, help you wrap your head around it. But um, so but I yeah, have a I mean, it's, yes, I have sir. a question for you. Do you do you have is because uh, I'm ignorant of it. You're you're basically teaching me. Do you see any of, I mean, I think there's ways in which it's doing, a, a, you know, sort of a perennial thing about meaning making and, and the cultivation of meaning and, and a mythos. And do you, do you, is there any sense you have that um, it's partially, you know, I don't mean in an explicit sense, but it's partially responding to uh, the meaning crisis that people are looking for something in this uh, that's missing in their culture, missing in their individual cognition. It's giving them sort of a, a meaning in life that they otherwise would not have? Do people talk about it in this way at all? Uh, I think so, because if you look at the Bitcoin's kind of genesis, there's, you know, the very, very earliest adopters were people that were developers. They were cypherpunks, um, uh, especially early on the cypherpunks. These are the people that kind of developed, you know, um, encryption protocols and things to keep. They, they valued the concept of privacy on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, so kind of almost this priestly cast of the early internet days. And then it kind of, uh, the, the bigger, the first really big wave of adoption, I would call it, which is still pretty small in, in the, in the, in the world sense, but, um, was the political. It was a lot of, um, libertarians, a lot of people who valued this idea of having a decentralized money. Um, yeah. they had, um, and it, it was, it was very, uh, there's some synchronicity too that Bitcoin was actually, the white paper was launched right as the 2008 crisis. It, ah. and so it wasn't developed, but it was very, it wasn't developed because of that, because it had, it was being developed, you know, in the lead up to it. But um, right, 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 in, right, in the see. Genesis block is the, um, in, in the Genesis block, when the, when the, when the first block was created, coded into it was uh, the, uh, the head of the um, uh, London Times, I believe. Uh, mm. chancellor on the brink and, and basically talking about doing a bailout for the banks and it was this very synchronous time and i think that bailout was also especially for kind of gen z 30 somethings was a real big wake-up call for for a lot of them that the you know the boom years of the 90s the 2000s uh that this was not that you know this was kind of an aberration right and that the things that you kind of grew up thinking were were settled were you know were not right, um right, and right. yeah i i think that it's it's a response of it. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm in the space. I'm a huge, you know, obviously supporter of Bitcoin, but I don't know necessarily if it's if it's a good uh, response to the meaning crisis. You kind of almost yeah, have right. to see what the, the fruits of it bear out. But yeah. I think that a lot of people do once they get into it, they realize the political implications of it. They realize the, the kind of this idea of decentralization as a new way to view mm -hmm. different aspects of society that it can. If you are searching for meaning, Bitcoin can provide that meaning because right. if if you find something that has high implications that you can take part in even in a small way it can impart that kind of meaning in your yeah, life. yeah definitely definitely it gives you a sense of efficaciousness in the world a sense of connectedness to events and to other people and what other people value and that of course can definitely uh, contribute to a rise in the sense of meaning in life i, I yeah I, that's very interesting thank you for uh thank you for uh, tutoring me on this i appreciate it yeah and uh, one of the other thoughts that I, I wanted to put across you, I know that um, uh, you are like you, your practices of, of of mindfulness and and well, I, not necessarily mindfulness, but of implementing psychotechnologies. Um, you're not one that delves into the supernatural aspects of of, of Buddhism. If I if no, I, no 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 no. Yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm a thoroughgoing. Uh, sort of physicalist in, in a metaphysical sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, I, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do mindfulness practices. I do many different mindfulness, or at least that have an important mindfulness aspect to them. I do Vipassana meditation, meta contemplation. I do a kind of Neoplatonic uh, contemplative practice. I do, I do uh, Tai Chi Chuan. I do Qi Kung, uh, Pranayama, some yoga. Like there's, I, I do many of those kinds of things. Lectio Divina, uh, many of those, some of them are very, uh, they, they're focally mindfulness practices. Others have mindfulness as, uh, uh, as a facilitating uh, condition or factor. Um, yeah, uh, but, you know, um, uh, but those also need to be integrated with 
uh, other uh, kinds of practices, uh, active open-mindedness, uh, learning good skills of, 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 of how to generate and assess plausibility in your theory construction. So there's also um, some more sort of propositional theoretic uh, inferential kinds of practices I engage in as well. And trying to get these all coordinated together is something because I, I see, like I say, I don't, I see, I see the cultivation of wisdom as about trying to get a very comprehensive um, systematic response uh, to uh, self-deceptive behavior. And, and, and these two go together and also affording uh, self-transcendence where that is understood as your capacity uh, to both overcome self-deception and enable insight, flow, connectedness, a better ability to zero in on relevant information, deal with complexity, ill-defined situations, right? And also to go through a, at a deeper level, you know, fundamental transformations in the, your, the structure of your cognition, the grammar of your cognition, and even the structure of yourself, uh, your identity, um, and, and things like that. So I think all of that, well, I think it can very legitimately said to be said to have existential and spiritual implications. I think all of that can ultimately fundamentally be understood from within a scientific perspective. And I think that is very important to responding to the meaning crisis, because one of the problems we I mean, I think attempts to try and ignore, subvert or nostalgically try to get before uh, the scientific worldview are doomed to failure. I think whatever solution we come up to the meaning crisis, it has to be one in which we can be resituated within a scientific worldview. I mean, that's one of the problems we face. We generated this amazing scientific worldview in which our capacity to make meaning and generate explanations and find things intelligible is not actually explained within the scientific worldview. We don't have a scientific explanation, for example, of how we can do science. And so we need an account of wisdom, I would argue, that importantly can be integrated with our scientific practice precisely because then it can address the need of resituating us within the scientific worldview. And because I just do not think uh, there's any way around responding to the meaning crisis without taking the scientific worldview deeply seriously. The, the, the reason that I was asking was because I, I just wanted to, to, to make sure because my, my next question was kind of could be con kind of construed as um, may maybe kind of going into straying into the territory of, you know, woo woo uh, or, okay. or supernatural, but um, you know, it's kind of in relation to somewhat uh, adjacent, I guess, maybe to the Jungian concept, uh, mm -hmm. Carl Jung of the collective unconscious, which sure. uh, for, for listeners was a concept that Jung, um, he advocated for, uh, or that he advocated was the, the inherited structures of the brain, Yep. that kind of contain these archetypes archetypes and primitive concepts that that we kind of hardwired and kind of recognize in the world around us but yeah they um, they they are the they're they're the mechanisms the self-organizing processes within your brain that are responsible for your capacity to to become a human person as opposed to a specific person right they they're, they're sort of the um, the bedrock from which your humanity is constructed, it, and it's an inherited legacy. So human beings, there are general, i.e. collective ways of being in the world, and these archetypes help to facilitate our interaction with each other in the world in such a way that we can vouchsafe and develop our humanity. And, and, then, and then our attempt to individuate, to build our own personal uh, personhood and personality uh, have to be done in concert and in recognition of how that our particular identity um, has to be in dialogue with um, our identity as a human being. That's how I would try and explain it. You know, with, with that is that I was wondering, is it possible that in conjunction with this move, moving away from traditional institutions and traditional uh, purveyors of the, the, the psychotechnologies that kind of gave us meaning and, and everything, mm. um, you know, the, the rapid, uh, uh, you know, in our society, which kind of almost seems to be reaching almost a pinnacle of, of human achievement, uh, the rapid advancement of technologies and the advent of the age of artificial intelligence and, well, yeah, and all that. And, yeah. and not to use that as a, a boogeyman, because how realistic and how likely is that going to happen with, you know, it's gonna five years or 50 years, we don't know, but it's in the public consciousness. And this kind of signifies our, our loss of status as the kind of the high watermark of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
perhaps we we are unconsciously rec- you know recognizing these archetypal stories play out and are aware at maybe at a, a less subconscious level of these changes on the horizon and maybe this is kind of almost a uh, a non-supernatural tarot card reading of future events based on these kind of predictive archetypes that's manifesting as this anxiety in society and, and loss of meaning. Um, so let me or say, it could be too woo woo. Uh, no, 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 uh, no. Let's play with this a bit. I mean, like, you've already, you've put your cards on the table and you said you're not trying to evoke some sort of supernaturalistic metaphysics or something like yeah. that. So uh, I, I, you know, and I, um, I have a lot of respect for Jung. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of criticisms of Jung, but I have a lot of respect for Jung too. So I'm not willing to just sort of dis- be dismissive. I, I, I don't think that's appropriate to what you said. Uh, let me try and think. Of, I mean, I want to challenge one thing you said, uh, um, but it, it may turn around to actually support you in some ways. There's okay. actually been, there's been extended periods where we were firmly convinced we were not the pinnacle of human intelligence, uh, of intelligence, uh, right? So, I mean, if you read all through the Middle Ages, uh, you know, you know, Thomas Aquinas was called the angelic doctor precisely because he reflected repeatedly on angels. And I don't believe angels exist in any sort of kind of supernatural sense, but he reflected on them and the kind of intelligence they must possess. And that was often used as a contrastive way of understanding human intelligence. So there, we, we have had extended periods where we, we do this. Um, and, and then there was also a period in sort of the second century in the Mediterranean where people, and Stang talks about that in his book, people thought of themselves as possessing a divine double, an aspect even of themselves that was somehow superior to their sort of their current ego and current, current narrative self. And so there have been extended periods when people have, have, have confronted this before. So that's one thing we should note. And one, one question you might ask, linking that point to what you've just said, is the degree to which people might tap into um, those, I'll, I'll use a young in terms of sort of archetypal way of thinking, because what one of the things saying argues is that's kind of a perennial thing that human beings do. We conceive of intelligence as greater than our own, and sometimes even bound to us in special relationships as a way of trying to understand um, both our place and our capacity for self-transcendence. So one thing that might happen right, is the advent of artificial and general intelligence might lead people uh, to start adopting some of that mythological language for talking uh, about artificial intelligence and our relationship to it. I mean, instead of them being heartless monsters, it's possible. I'm not, I may, I'm not making a prediction here, right, Dustin? I'm just stating a possibility, right? It's possible that, uh, you know, we could be creating silicon sages um, and, and, and then our relationship to them might be very different from the kinds of relationships that are normally seen in sort of this uh, the scientific uh, apocalypse. Um, I also would, would I also want to say something about the more general point you're making, and, and I'm trying to tie that in. You know, the uh, the archetypes, at least according to Jung, and and, and the way I, I understand mythos in general is there are ways of picking up on sort of perennial problems or, or really pivotal patterns um, uh, that are happening in history. And often those two uh, playing together, how sort of perennial issues are being given a particular pivotal historical twist. And, and, and the archetypes often give us a way of at least latching on to those, those perennial patterns, those perennial issues, and even give us at least an initial narrative for trying to express and talk about um, uh, pivotal events. That's, and, and, uh, my own work is an example of trying to understand that. Chris and Philip and I basically talked about the rise of the zombie as a current cultural mythology, trying to articulate and express um, many of the features of the meaning crisis. And, and, and in that sense, I think the zombie—I don't know what you'd say—it's predictive, but it's at least it, it, it's at least expressive of of the uh, of of an increasing awareness pervasiveness and deleteriousness, you know, uh, of the meaning crisis. And so, in fact, I think it's telling that, you know, you have this pervasive mythological response to the meaning crisis and the generation of this very new uh, mythology. And then what you find something interesting is how it perverts uh, the Christian mythos and, and then how it attaches and perverts also the apocalypse mythos. And so, 
I, I, this is a long way of saying, I think there's something right to what you're saying, that these archetypal patterns um, often are the first ways in which we express and maybe into some degree uh, have some sort of foresight about the emergence uh, or maybe the increasing pressure or presence of these kinds of patterns in our culture. I can see that. In fact, I think in some ways that was a, that was a, the, the, one of the central theses of the zombie book. So I think there's a way in which I hope I don't I hope you don't feel I'm putting words in your mouth, but no, I think no, there's a way I, I think there's a way in which I could appreciate and agree with what you're saying. Yes, it, it was it was funny when you mentioned uh, creating sages, and it kind of reminded me of uh, you know that, that maybe the the prevailing wisdom of where that we you know that we're creating Judgment Day you know Terminator is 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 less likely, and maybe we're just getting the uh, mechanical owl from the Clash of the Titans. Well, I mean, we already have it to a degree. We're already starting to yeah. do it, right? We're carrying around the phones, right? And, and and there's just there's just some preliminary research on how much this is starting to intermesh um, and affect our cognition. Uh, and, and the thing is, these phones also carry psychotechnologies, right? Various apps and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I I think I think. It's reasonable that we're going to see AGI. I mean, I'm in the business, so I, I, I can sort of comment on this. I, I think it's reasonable we're going to see AGI, autonomous artificial general intelligence, sort of within 50 years. But you shouldn't think of that as a digital prediction, like nothing, 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 and then autonomous a, right, AGI. That's not what's going yeah. to happen. There's going to be this slow ramping up. And what I see us doing, because we have always bloody well done it, is we, got, we are going to cyborg ourselves with these emergent technologies as much as we possibly can, right? We are going to cyborg ourselves increasingly with them because we are natural born cyborgs to use Andy Clark's, you know, really felicitous phrase. And so I see that increasingly happening. And so it's, and that's why I'm suggesting, could your smartphone, as you cyborg with it, start to become something like the divine double, you know, this, this extra, it's kind of you, but not you, it's superior to you in some way, but it also, you know, helps you aspire and transcend yourself. I could, I mean, I'm not predicting that could happen, but I could def, I, I am predicting that we're going to cyborg. I think that's, I think that's pretty much a guaranteed thing. But one way in which our cyborging might mythologically express itself, right? And you saw a little bit of touch of that, right? In that movie, Her, where, you know, the smartphone sort of, you know, becomes super intelligent and becomes like this angelic figure uh, to the Aquim Phoenix character. So people are already starting to toy with that idea of, you know, the pair, the, the, the AI that we are cyborg paired with as potentially being a divine double that affords and helps our own self-transcendence. I could, I could see that also possibly being a, a way in which, you know, our, our, our mythic imagination and our, our, and our cyber technologies come together. The uh, this kind of fits in with the, the last question I wanted to ask you, which was about um, the, the virtual exodus that mm -hmm. you've spoken about how, you know, individuals are abandoning, uh, you know, quote unquote reality, uh, the physical yeah. world for the virtual world. Um, since there are very clear rules there, there's a narrative structure that's kind of lacking right now in the world. And I, I've always kind of felt a bit positive about this idea of transferring reality to virtual. Uh, wow. Maybe it's just because I grew up in, you know, with, with technology, but it almost kind of fit within, you know, to bring Bitcoin back in with it. Within Bitcoin, there's this concept you could fork. Right. So when there's there's actually multiple different forks of Bitcoin uh, mm -hmm. based on communities who they could not come to consensus on what the direction they wanted to see it in. So you basically just you fork the code, you implement the changes that you want to. And I always kind of felt like it was a very it, it was a peaceful, uh, amicable divorce without like a civil war. Right. You know, they're they're Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a war of words and ideas. But at the end of the day, there's no bloodshed or anything like that. And it always felt like that the virtual world had this ability to allow people to self-segregate uh, that have, you know, different cultural and political ideas that, you know, at current time almost seems like there's 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 competing ideologies that I don't mm -hmm. see can peaceably live because um, both both of you know these different ideologies want to see the other one gone and not just in a. Yeah, no, it's um, adversarial. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, let's, yeah, uh, I think, I mean, part of the argument, uh, I, I just want to explicate it a little bit more. I mean, part of why people turn to the virtual world is that the, the, the three orders 
um, that had been pervasive since the actual revolution. Uh, and uh, people sense them as lacking in the, the the real world, and as you said, they're 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 very present in the virtual world. It, 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 there's a nomological order; things make sense. Everything is intelligible. It's coherent. It fits together. There's a narrative order. There's a there's a story that is you know pervades the cosmos of the game, and you play a pivotal role in that. Um, and then, of course, there is a normative order. Um, there is a way in which you self-transcend, you level up and you get to the deeper and, you know, deeper and deeper so-called realities, right? Or levels, right? Levels of reality of, of the world. So I think people are uh, going there uh, precisely because they, that it's a world that has all these orders of meaning that are lacking in the, the, um, in the real world. Now, the, the issue I have, I guess, with that is the increasing evidence um, for this. I mean, again, please understand that I'm not trying to overgeneralize. I'm not claiming, of course, that everybody who plays video games or anything like that. But the, 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 other, the concern I have is, you know, the WHO and others are considering video game addiction as a real phenomenon um, because you start to get um, addictive behavior. Um, because I mean, f for how much, how, uh, how much you might like that virtual world, it really can't sustain your life. You need to, you know, you, you need to have shelter, you need to have food. Um, and so people are getting caught up in these worlds to some degree, um, that's deleterious to their ability to actually take care of themselves, to be functional. And that's, that's the only really good definition we have of addiction, uh, some kind of compulsive behavior that is deleterious to your ability to, to function um, as an adult. And, and what's particularly uh, perhaps conducive to that is that uh, video games are terrific flow induction machines. They're, they're fantastic ways of, of inducing the flow state. And the problem there is, and I, I, some of my students have done work on this, right, is you because you're in the flow state within the game, you get this terrifically enhanced sense of agency uh, at the expense of, you know, undermining of your agency in general, and that can be, that can be very misleading for people. They can mistake um, this very limited, inflated agency with their actual uh, agency, and that again can have very deleterious um, psychological effects on people. Once again, let me repeat: I am not claiming that even the majority of people who play video games they're doing this right i'm I, I do think that a lot of the attraction of video games for everybody is th is that how it responds to a, a loss of these orders of meaning in our life but i do worry about the the deleterious the addictive uh, uh the, the the sort of deceptive you know, deceptive about your identity and agency aspects of this and and then in conjunction with that I don't like the fact that uh, the virtual world has lost the connection to virtue, which um, is, is paradoxical given the, the name. I mean, virtue originally didn't mean just possibility. It meant, you know, a possibility for be, uh, a power for being good. And again, this is where the confusion about your agency can be deeply misleading. You know, you may be a heroic or in some sense, you know, virtuous character within this world, but it doesn't seem to transfer back to how people are leading their lives or interacting with other people. And, and so that's also a concern I have. Um, so I still see it, I guess I'm making an argument for, I still see it as much more symptomatic than as a reflective response to the meaning crisis. No, I, I, I take your meaning. I think that uh, it was one of the things that Jordan Peterson had talked about too, is that, like exactly what you're saying is that they have these archetypes that we connect with, you know, the hero's yeah. journey and, and these, yeah. these very yeah. specific things. And that's why things like star Wars, Harry Potter yeah. are all popular and other series are not because they get the, these archetype uh, archetypes. Correct. But, um, but here's but, the problem with those, but, but notice what they don't do. Right. Think about c contrast the star Wars religion with the Christianity religion. Like what do you do? Like, what practices do you engage in? What life path, right? Like, what in what way do you actually start to practice it? There isn't, right? It's it's passive. It's viewed, right? And you may you may go to Comic Con. There's some rituals, but it 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 it, it doesn't actually propose 
a serious existential challenge or give you a, a serious existential pathway for going forward. And that's the big difference, right? That's the big difference. So although it triggers the archetypes, it gives you no serious way, if, you, if we want to play in the Jungian playground right now, it gives you no serious way of you know, engaging those archetypes in an ongoing process of individuation. No, I I absolutely agree. It's just I think that you know what you're saying is that they trigger them. I mean, and that's why they yeah. are because they're not being fulfilled. That's right. Me, they're not being yeah. fulfilled in in in, in another way because you don't. I mean, it's kind of the same way as looking at like in a relationship. Uh, if you are fulfilled, if you're happy in a relationship, you're not going to be going and looking around for something else. That's, you know, that's it, right. It, and and uh, in a, in a way, all these you know veganisms, the Star Wars, to whatever is is kind of uh, uh, our minds uh, kind of uh, looking at the at the at the attractive person who's walking by. Yes, exactly. I mean, we're hungry, right? And I mean, look, addictions always always are parasitic upon adaptive behavior. Your example of looking at the attractive person, I mean, that's a, that ultimately connects to adaptive machinery for sexual reproduction and whatnot, right? Um, and, and, and so I think um, what powers, and this is an argument I made from the beginning, the very machinery that makes us adaptive is simultaneously the machinery that makes us susceptible to self-deception. And so, yeah, these things trigger these, you know, adaptive processes, these processes you know of 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 self-organized i think it's fair to attribute to young a, a kind of dynamical model that because the archetypes are not things they're not entities he's very clear about that they generate specific images but for young i, I mean a good way a, a one way i think and potentially a helpful way of thinking of the archetypes is they're dynamical systems they're self-organizing patterns right uh within cognition uh, and so I think they're deeply adaptive, but as I think we're agreeing, what's happening a lot in our culture is we're triggering these because we have a hunger to for the connectedness and the meaning cultivation that this machinery can give us, but we're also in a culture that the triggering does not actually provide us an arena within which those connections can be cultivated and deepened. So it's like it's it, it's like you know it's like sh- a sugar drink. It's sort of triggering you know all of the adaptive machinery without providing any of the nutri- nutrition. Uh, that's yeah, that's exactly. So I was having a conversation with somebody, um, and and not to. Um, as a person from from my my faith background, as I'm I'm more of a, a traditionalist within uh, Catholicism versus the kind of new charismatic movements, and I've always kind of and not to cast dispersion on anybody's particular beliefs or anything like that that may be listening, but I always kind of felt that a lot of the uh, the um, kind of modern char- uh, charismatic type of rituals were more of a high fructose corn syrup version of of ritualistic practices and that they make you feel good for the moment but the kind of the deeper mm-hmm. is you you talked about we, we lost um a lot of that within the the reformation of yeah. these these monasteries these the the benedict and the contemplation um yeah. that that still really exist uh, uh within um especially within the east and the orthodox uh tradition yes. um, yeah and, but, jo- and jonathan pajot is doing some excellent work on that I yeah, I, was, I listened to your uh, your episodes uh, with him. That, that was very. Uh, I'll yeah. link to those in the notes. But um, uh, I know that uh, it's for the listeners uh, who you know you never know when they are actually going to be listening. But we're actually recording this uh, in the evening, and it's uh, John was uh, more than gracious enough to um, uh, make time in his evening so that we could record this episode. And uh, I, I I have a, you know more. I wanted to go kind of deep dive into the. AI section, but maybe we can talk about that on a, on a different episode and kind of the, how, how that is either possible or impossible with, um, um, you know, the concept of developing meaning within an artificial intelligence as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that goes to, that goes to the heart of sort of the episodes that are coming out right now. Oh, okay. Perfect. I mean, because I'm trying to, you know, develop this uh, notion, at least in discourse from some, key ideas from machine learning um, to trying to understand how, yeah, not only how, I mean, because I'm a cognitive scientist, not only how you might generate uh, artificial general intelligence, but how that might also help us better understand our own general intelligence and what that might tell us about uh, what's going on in meaning making 
and what that in turn might tell us about, um, you know, a lot of the kinds of ways of thinking and being and developing that have fallen under the the, the notion of spirituality. That's exactly where those exactly are are, are the episodes that are are, are uh, coming out right now in the video series. Well, I'd recommend that everybody, um, you know, go to, I'll have the, in the show notes at uh, digitalcrypto.com slash EP48, all the things that we mentioned uh, will, will be in there. Uh, all John's books, his uh, mini crisis series, his lecture with Jordan Peterson and anything else that, uh, that we mentioned in this episode. And I'd like to, you know, extend a huge thank you to you for, you know, taking time out. You know, it was, a, it was an absolute pe pleasure. And, you know, you've left me with, you know, even more to ponder and think about. And I'm actually really excited to now that you say that that's the topics that I'll be, um, I'll be listening to those or, or, I'll be waiting for them to come out so I can download them. Uh, but how could people contact you and, and find your work? Um, so, I mean, you know, going on, uh, getting, you know, go on open book publishing and they can find the, the book, uh, you know, zombies in uh, Western, uh, Western culture, a 21st century crisis. Uh, they can definitely uh, go on to, uh, you know, YouTube uh, in addition to in addition to awakening from the meaning crisis, um, I have a lot of my talks uh, and more academic presentations at conferences, um, so they, yeah, they 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 pretty much don't have to read um, any of my academic papers if they don't want to, because many of all of those ideas have been at least pre presented in, in, um, in at conferences. Um, I'm I'm in the process of starting uh, the production on an, uh, a follow-up series that's going to come after Awakening from the Meaning Crisis is done. It's going to be called After Socrates. What I'm going to be doing is taking a look at many of the movements that arose after Socrates, the cynics and the Stoics, the skeptics, uh, the Neoplatonists, and even more, you know, things like the existentialists, um, and then putting that into dialogue uh, with uh, a resurgence of very similar kinds of practices like the Neo-Stoicism that's prevalent today, um, the authentic discourse movement, circling practices. And that's sort of, so I'm sort of doing a play on words on after Socrates. It's not only what came after Socrates, but how can we pursue Socrates? How can we try and uh, become more like what Socrates ha uh, seemed to have represented by sort of triangulating back through all these different traditions and putting it into dialogue? Can we come up with something analogous to uh, the Socratic practice as a way of trying to give people kind of, uh, to use a, a phrase that came out in the conversation with Jordan Hall, a meta-psychotechnology, because this is what dialectic was in the ancient world, Socratic and Platonic dialectic. Can we come up with a meta-psychotechnology meta for better designing, coordinating, and creating an ecology of practices? And uh, so I, I, that's what I'm going to be doing next. So people can also look forward to that, I would hope. Well, once again, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we could talk soon. I would like that very much. And thank you for, uh, for uh, the discussion on the Bitcoin stuff. I found what you had to say very insightful.